This is a production of Cornell University. So welcome everybody to the Cornell Turf Show. Uh, this will be our finale uh, for the spring. And, you know, what started out as an idea to just talk into the wind in 2020 um, for uh, during COVID to, to actually keep people abreast of when they could work, how they could work. We had so much, so many things unsure at the time that the genesis of this idea uh, really was good. And I think we've learned now that travel schedules and life is back to post-COVID, it's a little bit tricky both for Carl and I uh, and our guests to do this. So, um, I, But we also know that we get a lot of feedback from people who uh, don't listen live or watch live, but really enjoy uh, catching up on the podcast or watching the YouTube thing um, that we post every week. In fact, when it's not up, uh, we hear from them uh, almost immediately um, uh, about, you know, why isn't it up? So so thanks, everybody, for a wonderful season. This is uh, week nine uh, of the show. And, and as you can see in this picture, this is pretty much what a lot of golf course superintendents and assistants and assistants in training and anybody who is an able-bodied person able to read a water meter or know where the hot spots on a green are, hose dragging has become has begun. Now, this is incredibly unusual for us uh, in the Northeast uh, at the spring and the springtime to be dragging a hose and throwing this much water early. And so you can see many people on the crew are already hurting. Uh, this was a tweet from a golf course superintendent took his kid to work and between him and the dog laying on the garage floor, I could not pass this up. It was absolutely depicts what I'm sure many are already feeling and projecting. Oh, it's going to be a long season uh, of dragging a hose if it keeps up like this. Now, the odd thing is, if you've been paying attention at all, the cooler nighttime conditions have been keeping the uh, overall temperatures below normal. I mean, you can see, and it's and there's a really strong gradient as you go south, significantly cooler, eight degrees below normal in the Delmarva Cap DC area. And as you come up, it gets a little bit closer, a little bit above normal. So you see, you know, in Rockland County, Orange County, they're a little bit ahead and out Western New York as well. Of course, you know, the 15 people that live in New Hampshire, Vermont, and those two people that live in Maine, Carl, they've yeah. been experiencing some uh, warmer than normal conditions. But, you know, the cooler than normal conditions has been pretty much related to the cool nighttime temperatures, which I'm sure any golf course superintendent would tell us is a welcome relief, right? I mean, if that heat stress keeps up, if you look at our heat stress map, you're simply not seeing the temperature issues uh, that the heat stress index conditions because the nighttime temperatures are so cool. Now, again, what seems really odd is the Western and Northern parts of the region uh, have soil temperatures well above 65, 67. Some might even be reporting temperatures in the 70s in Western New York, uh, the Finger Lakes region. But then as you get down into the New York metro area, Jersey and South Pennsylvania, the Eastern end of Pennsylvania, and of course out to the Cape and along the coast, you can see they're still in the low to mid 50s. So a significant gradient in soil temperature. So you want to keep track of this because obviously this is going to govern a lot of what's going on. And, and, you know, what, when we often talk about growth potential, right, that's the potential for growth. 
And right now we're at a pretty high growth potential, 80 to 90% the potential for growth to occur. However, because of the dry conditions, we're simply not getting the growth. So this was uh, last week's rainfall up, up, you know, the 17th to the 23rd. You can see uh, very little rain in the middle part of this of the region, and and quite a bit of rain towards the other side. Now this is more than a week old, uh, and it's been pretty dry since then. So if we look at the more recent data that looks at precipitation minus evapotranspiration, you see the hard gradient that's established right around the DC area, Baltimore and DC and south of there, they're getting rainfall. But north of DC, we have, we're at two inch deficits in a single week, which means we didn't get rain and ET was really high as, as we've seen this past week. And of course you've seen the grass has started to dry out. Now, the forecast does not look good uh, for Western parts of the region, Western PA, Western New York, West Virginia. If you happen to be listening in, in Eastern Ohio, those areas are gonna be extremely dry. They're not gonna benefit uh, from the rain that's expected on Saturday. And that rainfall might is likely to be primarily focused along the coast. Uh, Art D. Gaetano, our climatologist was saying, rainfall is expected to be maybe about inch, inch and a half on Long Island, about three quarters of an inch in New York City, and then degrade as we get up into our region. And if we get a half an inch, uh, we'll be lucky uh, because as, as this front moves through. And a lot of this has to do with the way the jet stream has been positioned. In fact, on our conference call this morning, we heard that it was warmer in upstate New York this past week than it was in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, anytime you see that flip-flopping, you know there's something funky going on with the weather. Now, Carl sent me this beautiful uh, map, uh, this beautiful graph this morning about the cumulative precipitation and you know, normal precip, you know, you're you're right in the 10 inch, 10 inches range, maybe 11 inches uh, for the season. Last year, as everybody remembers, we stayed above normal for much of the springtime, and then it started to dry out. But right now, we're two to three inches behind normal precip. And and while we might get a little bit of rain on on uh, the on Saturday, it doesn't look like it's going to give us any more than a blip. So, Carl, I'm going to pass it to you. It looks like Dr. Serena has joined us. Uh, welcome, Mateo. Thanks for taking the time. Carl, why don't you do your uh, discussion here on water usage? Yeah, so so always, Frank, it's a nice little overview of the weather, right? The weather is the short term, sort of what we're experiencing right now. Uh, and I sort of want to zoom out to, to some of the longer term trends, right? The climate uh, and this paper, Turf Grass and Climate Change, sort of highlights um, how the climate is, how we expect the climate to change and what are the repercussions for us as uh, in the turf industry. So, you know, Jerry looks through some of the data and he says one of the things we're going to see in our sort of mid latitudes is uh, on an annual basis, actually an increase in precipitation. And basically uh, what's going on there is warmer air just holds more water. Right, so it doesn't feel like it now with our current weather. We're not getting any precipitation, but uh, on the whole, we're probably going to see a little bit more of that. But on the other side, we've got higher temperatures. That means increased uh, evaporative demand, right? So higher ET values. That's what we're seeing right now. Um, so we're sort of ha having to handle both sides of the water equation too much and maybe too little. Uh, and then you look at these variations uh, season to season or even uh, year to year. Again, we're seeing that. We saw 2021 was a very wet year. 
uh, more, much more precipitation than, than normal. In the last two years, right, last year got really dry in the summer. We're already seeing it this spring. So that variation, right, that's not a great thing from a superintendent managing, right? You've got to handle all the, you know, the, all the wet, all the dry, and that's where infrastructure comes in. Uh, I was looking at some of Mateo's uh, tweets recently. You were doing some irrigation audits, Mateo. I got out there last year, did one yesterday, actually. Uh, and it's really cool data to look at. And I would just say that uh, maintaining your infrastructure is vital to, to handling this variation, right? The variation in water. Um, if you go back to that graph, Frank, and just a couple things to note from our irrigation audits. Uh, whenever a head looks wrong, it is wrong in the data. <laughs> so you see some of these heads here if they're throwing low, if it looks like the, the output isn't good, if it's not reaching the same height as other heads, it shows up in the data. Either there's more in certain areas, uh, just just these, these data are in inches per 10 minutes, right? So you're seeing some areas on green are getting twice as much irrigation. And then converting that, right? Not everybody, and we've surveyed people, Frank, right? Not everybody knows the inches to the depth of water to minutes of runtime conversion. Uh, and, and we just make a note of that, hey, it's probably a good idea to know hey, what does eight minutes get me? Is that an eighth of an inch or is that a 0.08 inches, 0.1, right? That's an important thing to know. Um, and then using data, right? And this is something that's very common. Uh, I'm sure where, where Mateo, you did your work down in the South and the West Coast, right? Where water is scarce and a valuable commodity. People use ET data. Uh, we don't see that quite as much up here. And I think that's because, right? We're getting a lot of precipitation very often and maybe we're not paying so much for water. But just some of this data, I mean, we're getting close to a quarter of an inch a day reference ET data, Frank. So if you're irrigating at, say, 75% of that, that's still 0 0.18, 0 0.17-ish. Yeah, and you saw in the map, Carl, the map was showing we were at two-inch deficits, right? Yeah, so, and, and, and yeah, per week, you're getting to almost close to two inches of, of a deficit reference ET. Yeah. So this is good stuff to know. Hey, I should run my water certain cycle to replenish that. Uh, and then we think of, you know, just, just basic stuff, planning for drought years, right? These drought emergency plans. We've got a little spreadsheet online, fillable, right? It's really quick. It's just four pages. It's actually a drought and nutrient management worksheet. This is part of our RIT sustainable golf practices. We tried to make this as simple as possible for everybody. Um, have the information in there, fill it out. It's, it's, you know, a couple pages at the start to sort of explain what it is. And then you see just basically, you know, how much are you going to irrigate? What practices are you going to do when you irrigate? Uh, and then there's great tools online like the USGA uh, water budget calculator. So we've been running this already this spring based on some of the ET data, historical ET data. How much water should you use in general? How many irrigated acres? You can adjust the ET factors in there. Uh, that's a really good tool, I think, just to sort of benchmark your water use. And again, plan. Last year, you probably used a little bit more water than normal in our region. It's probably good to communicate with your GM, your, your membership. Hey, if that happens again, if we get 75% uh, of the rainfall that we normally expect, here's how much water I think we're going to have to use. And you have to budget for that sort of stuff. So that planning, I think, Frank, is, is something we think about and, and something I'd encourage everybody to, to do because it's, it's really not that hard. We've tried to make it easy. The USGA has got this great tool to make it easy. Yeah, um, and I think it's really useful for everybody. Yeah, and and of course, this is what uh, the grass is starting to look like, right? You're starting to see these localized dry spots, fairways, any areas where there's stress and and limited rooting, uh, poor soils conditions, right? And then you know, if you have the staff, you know, here you are doing greens on the left, and here you got guys, you know, doing tees and fairways on the right with the big heads moving in the background. I mean. 
this is really predicated on having the workforce to do it. And again, this is very taxing when you're already doing this. And, and if your infrastructure doesn't work right, Carl, I thought one of the more important things you said is don't wait for a dry year. I mean, I, we've said for years, it, these kinds of stress conditions are going to expose the weaknesses in your infrastructure. And if you have, for the last few years, we've exposed weaknesses in drainage systems. We've been talking about drainage. Last year, we had so much rain, we could barely keep up with it. And lo and behold, probably everybody invested in drainage. And, and of course, what happens? We start to get dry weather. So let's take a little bit of a deep dive as we set it up for Dr. Serena to talk to us a little bit about what all these great resources that the USGA has. When we look at you know the academic articles on this, the kind of stuff that Stan Koska, Mike Fidanza, Cal Bigelow, Johnny Cesar have been looking at with critical soil water contents. When, how far can you dry these sands before they break and become hydrophobic? As Stan Koska would say, when, when the organic things in the soil begin a transformation that turns them from just normal acids into hydrophobic coatings that prevent the soils from re-wetting effectively. Now, again, a great paper that Mike and Cal and Stan published a number of years ago, really honing in on this, right? And, and talking about the use of soil surfactants, how these soils become water repellent where all these waxes and hydrophobicity characteristics come from. Um, and then of course, the value of using soil surfactants. Here you've got a very simple graph looking at the depth of the root zone where you're not treating it with a surfactant and it dries down significantly more, uh, particularly at the shallow depths. As you get deeper, the differences don't matter as much. But when you're up in the top two inches, you see a significant difference is, you know, 15, 20% difference in so volumetric water content, which is going to show up as dry spots. And so you, the use of surfactants and the wetting agents, as we often call them, are something that generally most people are not thinking about in April and May in the Northeast. But this would have been a year uh, where you would have needed something like that. Now, water use across the country is down. When you look at the GCSA survey from 2005 to 2020, you can see a significant reduction in the amount of water used on golf courses down from about, you know, 2.4 million acre feet to about 1.7 million acre feet. And you can see some of that, maybe 30 to 40% of that reduction is simply related to the fact that there are less irrigated acres on the golf courses, right? Some of that is golf courses closed down. Some of it is golf courses took out irrigated grass. Now, I think this is one of the most interesting aspects of the entire discussion, because listen, you're not gonna meet a golf course superintendent who doesn't want a dry golf course, especially in the Northeastern United States, where we generally have a plethora, plethora of rainfall that creates a problem. In the GCSA water usage survey, they said how receptive are your golfers to reduced water use and the changes that are associated with that. Now, five is very receptive. And if you focus in on just the Northeast here, you see that a full 40% of the respondees, the golf course superintendent said, my golfers are very receptive to me reducing water use 
and the changes that might be associated with that. Now, it's interesting down in the Southwest, you know, where dry conditions are typically more prevalent, they seem to be uh, less receptive. Now, that also could mean uh, instead of 90 or 100 acres of irrigated grass, now I've only got 70 or 80, and my ball is going to be in the desert half the time rather than actually sitting on any turf grass areas. Now, the thing that's interesting here is actually irrigated acreage of golf in the Northeast has gone up since 2005. And a lot of that, almost all of that has been associated with more irrigation in roughs. Now, this is probably a trend that's very different than once you get west of the Mississippi and the 100th Meridian. I'm sure this is a very different story, Matteo. But welcome to the show, um, Dr. Matteo Serena, who I've known for a number of years through his time at New Mexico State University, is now the senior manager of irrigation research and services with the USGA. And I'm sure very much involved in this wonderful website that the USG has, this Water Resource Center, that really has these great resources and really states the commitment, Matteo, about in the next 15 years, you're going to invest $30 million to reduce water use. All these great tools are available there. In fact, developing a drought emergency plan, much like we have here uh, for our Northeast golf courses, all of these resources in, in one place. And in an article that Mike Kenner wrote uh, in uh, the magazine that he writes for, I think it's Golf Industry News, he, he I know I've heard you say uh, nine buckets, but I thought this thing made a little more sense. 15 years, you're going to, you know, a resilience playbook, uh, practices that help us use less water, break down the barriers to adoption, including financial barriers. This is a big one. And, and water resilient research and breeding program. So Mateo, thank you for taking the time. I know it's early on the, on the on Pacific time for you. So talk to us a little bit about your initiatives with the USGA and the kinds of things you're starting to look at right now, being only a year uh, in the job. You're just getting started. There's a, a lot of years ahead of you. Just getting started, how's it starting to look for you? Well, thank you everyone. And it's great to be here um, talking about, you know, what the uh, uh, USGA is, is planning and, and wanting to do. So basically, you know, like TISRAM, it's, it's the, what generates after our new CEO, Mike Wan decided, um, you know, he, he um, put forward one of these, these big pillar, one of these big bold uh, leadership initiative and and one of the first was actually um, the the water project you know the beginning of the water initiative we're still calling it 15 30 45 which you've seen uh, from the from the slide that you presented the the 15 years 30 million dollars we don't like to talk a little more a, a lot about the 45 because we we get um golf courses a little scary or a little on that and we, we got some pushback already especially here in the southwest where courses already did so much in the last 20 years to to reduce water use um so but um, the, the goal is to, to drive, to keep drive down um, water use on, on golf courses uh, by, by 45%. And, you know, I know it's a, it's a hefty goal, but, you know, it's better to fall short of, uh, 
of high expectation than don't meet any expectation. Yeah. I couldn't so. agree more. Listen, <laughs> I'm totally in support. And I like when it's stir, you know me a long time. I like when it sort of stirs thing a little bit, but I often do hear this, even in the Northeast, Mateo, where a golf course superintendent says, Frank, I'm not conserving water because if they ask me to reduce it, I don't want to use that number from when I've already conserved. I want a big number. So 45% doesn't hurt as much. You, you know, the game that, you know, they, they have done a lot, turf grass reductions in some places. And of course, like, like this data I just showed you where we're increasing the amount of irrigated rough, right? So that's gotta be concerning. What do you say to the superintendents when they're like, listen, I'm afraid to start conserving now before I'm forced to do it, Mateo, uh, because then my number will be uh, unmanageable. How do you manage that conversation with them? So for, from our experience, what we've seen, it's helpful to start working with the local water agencies so, um, you know, we're helping here in, in the Coachella Valley and in the Los Angeles area where courses, you know, they started reducing acreage and getting incentives for that. Um, same thing is going to happen in Arizona pretty soon with the, with the lower um, basin for the Colorado River. So working with water agencies and having a track record uh, of what you've done, it's really helpful. And in general, this water agency uh, once they get a once they get an idea and an estimate, they know which courses they've been doing a good job in being proactive, reducing acreage, maintaining the irrigation system. Versus, you know, some of the other they they're trying to play, you know, like well, I don't really care, or like let me let me keep my numbers up, so when I get asked to cut by twenty percent, I'm going still gonna be okay. Yeah. Um, times is times are changing, so. It's better to get involved, uh, and and it's better to stay updated. Um, yeah. Don't don't be like um, like an ostrich and drive, <laughs> stick your head in the ground. Stick your head in the sand and pretend. Yeah. That... So so it's it's good to hear that you're getting credit for a period of time, right? If you've if had a history of of reductions. Now I know this is a bigger conversation west of the Mississippi, and I know that's where a lot of your focus is, but we can already start to see. I don't, I think there's smolders, maybe a little smoke where places on Long Island, we're starting to hear maybe an initiative to use reclaimed water uh, on some of the golf courses that helps solve actually a water quality problem on Long Island, where we've got a lot of failing septic systems, a lot of failing wastewater systems and golf courses can provide real solutions. We've also got a lot of water withdrawal issues, Connecticut golf courses have come under a lot of restrictions. We don't get the intensity of drought that you get out West, right? Of course, nowhere near that. But what we're experiencing now, Mateo, is this very interesting episodic thing. If you look back at, I showed a graph earlier before you joined us, it rained about an inch and a half on May 29th, and it hasn't really rained much since then. And so we've gone about three and a half weeks. Now, again, three and a half weeks out West is, is nothing. You guys are, that's like, woo, we take rain every three weeks. Uh, it's like heaven. Out here, this is where we start to throw more water, get more hand watering. When we think about some of the challenges back East here, wedding agents are going to be an opportunity. I'm a little concerned about more 
acreage being irrigated, that's got to get your attention a little bit. What are you talking to guys like Elliot and some of the other senior directors here in the East uh, about these things? Is there any discussion of what we should be thinking about in support of this? I know you're focused out West, but everybody and their brother started, oh, I got, you know, this makes your water wetter or inject this thing into your water. What are the kinds of things you think in places like the Northeast might be useful for us to start to consider? Yeah, definitely, you know, like, as, as you said, my, my premier uh, focus is here in the Southwest, but my position is actually at the, at the national level. So, you know, like I'm, uh, we are looking to help um, all the courses, even the one on the East. And, and as you pointed out, um, we, we're noticing, you know, like Texas or other parts of this, of the country where they're going to this episode of, of drought. So having a plan is, is really essential. Um, like, you know, you have the one on your, on your website and it's, it looks like it's pretty, uh, easy and simple to use, but how, you know, have an idea of, of what you, um, need to irrigate and what you have to do when you're asked to reduce or like, or if you well go dry, or if you can only hand water, you know, like maybe it is time that you have to, uh, limit your irrigation just to the teas and the, and the, and the greens and let the fairways and the raft go, you know, like generally, you know, the, the raft, if you, if you have a separate irrigation system, you can control that, you can do that. Um, and also keep in mind that grass is pretty resilient, probably like um, some of the species that we're using, you know, they're um, very drought tolerant to a level, you know, that we really don't give too much credit for. And also the, the recuperative capacity of that Kentucky bluegrass, you know, with the with the rhizomes, once the rain come back, once the drought is over, it is really able to regenerate. Um, and if you have ryegrass, you know, like reseeding and probably uh, putting out one of the new cultivars that they've been um, bred with, with fundings from, from the USGA, from the Davis program, you know, the, the, the breeders have been doing a, a tremendous job on producing new cultivars with more drought tolerance. So, you know, just, just, just kind of be, be ready, you know, and don't be afraid to, um, to cut the irrigation a little bit because you, your grass will survive, your golf course will come back. So one aspect of your work is, is, you know, getting new technologies out into the hands of folks. And um, we were really fortunate a few years ago uh, to put some subsurface irrigation on some teas out in Martha's Vineyard. Um, we had a, I think we met with you uh, and, and uh, Barrett a number of years ago before we did this. And it's pretty astounding how much water you save. We put about five inches of sand and then the subsurface irrigation. How has yep. it, I mean, to me, this seems like a no brainer. You worked on this for a long time, even with <laughs> crappy water, right? I mean, you guys got, yep. in many cases, you're doing this with crappy water. Talk to our listeners a little bit about that this could work for us in the Northeast, especially on flat, isolated tees where you got one big head that's throwing water, you know, a hundred yards away when all <laughs> you need is, is a little blowing. tabletop irrigated. Talk a little bit about your experience. Did you get a lot of adoption of this out West? Uh, what are some of the obstacles and keys? Cause guys will say, ah, I can't airify. Ah, I, you know, I don't know if it's yep. working. Right. So talk it's a little bit about your experience with subsurface irrigation. Yeah. So we really, started 
you know, 20 years ago or, or even, you know, more than that at New Mexico State with Dr. Bernleinauer, where we really took subsurface drip uh, uh, and, and have all the possible testing, saline irrigation, establishment, fertilizing, PGR application, you, you name it. And then um, it, it really picked up when the golf course, uh, um, the golf club of Las Campanas in Santa Fe, they were uh, their water was keep getting higher and higher. They wanted to start reducing how much water they were going to pay and, and use for. And so they, they, they looked it up online, you know, different strategies, they found us. And so we went out there and did like 12 P's on subsurface drip. And what we found is that, you know, it, it works. It, it's the grass is staying alive. They're using 50 to 80% of water and geez, we placed water meter in there. So, geez, you know, it was, it was, Calculator is not you know, it's just an, a quick estimate. Um, and uh, the, the, the other benefit was just the reduced in maintenance, you know, the, with these island tea, a lot of water was, was getting sprayed outside. And, um, and then the crew had to go and trim down the, all of the vegetation. So that's the thing now, I was, I was there a few weeks ago and they're up to over 20 teas they converted on, on their own. Teaser was uh, outside of the project. And same, you know, with the help of our agronomists here in the Southwest, uh, we are um, promoting it a little bit more. You know, Brian Whitlark, uh, he, he's really adamant about, you know, putting it onto these um, island teas to just to save water, reduce the, the overspray and, and, and the growth. So with Lola, it's starting to pick up. It's one of those things, you know, like, you, you know, the, the golf industry better than I do, but, you know, superintendent, they, they talk to each other. You know, if something is working for a course, it's going to tell their friends, and then their mm -hmm. friends are going to tell other friends. You know, we can publish paper, we can write scientific articles. <laughs> Nobody is going to care about beside the scientific community, but a golf course, you know, is going to care about what his friend down the road have done uh, and experiment and, and starting to adopt it. So slowly we're seeing, we're actually just um, um, working on, on, you know, on those, on those playbooks, you know, one of the aspects of that is subsurface drip so trying to give out some instruction to these facilities to start to implement them a little bit more uh and also as a as a part of this program uh we are we're doing projects where um we're trying to take this technology into larger areas so the plan is to do from tea all the way to green we're not comfortable doing greens yet mm -hmm. uh but we're going to take two three even more fairways uh, with the courses that want to work with us. And we're just going to do the entire thing and see how it works. You know, we don't know if it's going to be a feasible solution, but we know that it's delivering water better, more uniform. Hopefully we're going to have better playing conditions and on the, on the, and the end result is using less water. Yeah. And, and we, we, you know, we got a name for that overspray. We call it fugitive water because <laughs> out in the vineyard where they can't use herbicides uh, on the golf course, that was exactly what was happening. The, the fugitive water was escaping. Weeds were growing like crazy and they don't have herbicides to deal with them. So this was part of an overall pesticide use reduction strategy as much as water savings. And Carl, just like that, we've used up the 30 minutes. So is there any pressing questions for Dr. Serena? Otherwise, we'll thank him and let him get back to his day. Yeah, just I just want to highlight one one thing you said is is that uh, the case studies sort of golf courses doing it is really where you start to drive adoption and awareness. Um, and, and we've tried to do that with our resources. We've tried to be case study focused and golf course focused with the Vineyard Club, with Beth Page State Park, and, and some of our New York State parks. 
that's where I think where we'll start to see some of the adoption. So as superintendents work through this, they really sort of drive the um, the adoption of the new technologies. And I, and I think that's a great approach, the playbook approach to, to getting golf courses to do it. Um, yeah. Thanks so. for taking the time, Mateo. Thank it's you, great guys. to see you. It's I appreciate it. And congratulations on the job. And you always thanks, got thanks. partners up here in the Northeast to work with you. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks a bunch, Mateo. Everybody, uh, thanks for another good, uh, another season four season wrap. of Cornell Turf Show. This is the finale today. Thanks to all our listeners and viewers, uh, wherever you're getting this podcast, YouTube webinar. Uh, we'll see you again probably next year, maybe another one in the summer, who knows. Uh, but until then, take care. Thanks, everybody. See you, Carl. Bye, Mateo. Bye. This has been a production of Cornell University on the web at cornell.edu.